you've got a Bible, grab it and make your way to where Sarah just read from, Luke chapter 22. Um, glad to be back. Hope you all are doing well. Uh, my family went to Colorado this past week to visit family, uh, and so it was a great time to, to go and, and visit family and see some uh, beautiful country this time of the year with the aspens changing colors, but it's always good to be back be back home. So uh, Luke 22, we're going to be, that's page 882 in the Bibles around you. So if you don't have a Bible with you, grab one of those black ones around you. And if you don't have a Bible at home that you can read or understand, then take that one home with you. It's our gift to you. But there is a condition. We ask you to take that home with you on the condition that if you take it home, you will read it. Okay, so take it home, but read it. All right. Uh, have you ever noticed how in conversations, the conversations can just twist and they can morph and, and change like what you're talking about. And so, uh, I mean, you, you know this, you're in, you're in a conversation, you just see how it kind of meanders along. It's like a twisty river and, and it morphs and it changes and you start out talking about one thing and then you wind up talking about something completely different. All right? we, I mean, we all see this. This is just how conversation works. You're just talking about things and it morphs and it twists and it changes. And sometimes, not only does it just kind of like meander and, and, and change a little bit, but you actually wind up talking about something that is, that is opposite or, or like categorically different or opposed to what it was you began first talking about. It changes that much. That's kind of what happens with the disciples here in Luke chapter 22. Jesus has just, they've just shared the first ever Holy Communion together. Just the first ever Lord's Supper. They've just taken that. They've communed with Christ. They've communed with each other. And Jesus warns them, one of you is going to betray me. And so they start, you know, talking about, well, surely it's not me. Surely it's not me. Surely it's not me. And they kind of start defending themselves a little bit. But then that conversation and that defense of why they would never betray Jesus then morphs into a conversation, into an argument, actually, a dispute about who is the greatest Christian among them, which one is the absolute greatest. And Jesus hears this and, and, and he's going to shut this argument down by completely redefining greatness, completely redefining what greatness is, because the disciples problem and our problem as well is that a lot of times we're operating out of the wrong definition of greatness. We define greatness based upon the way the world defines greatness instead of how Christ defines greatness and personifies it. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And more than just a don't do this, do this, type of sermon which absolutely has a place I, I pray that this morning will also just be helpful to you in freeing because none of us are there but in helping free us all of us from the shackles of defining ourselves and our identity and our worth based upon the way the world defines greatness and instead we would define ourselves and our worth based upon how Christ defines greatness and, and based upon who he is for us. And so I pray that this would be helpful and we would find our hope and our worth and our value in the rock of ages. In the greatness of Christ. And so Luke chapter 22, 
I won't read all of what Sarah just read. We'll pick it up in verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. And so, again, the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. And before we get into, you know, how how the world defines greatness and how Christ defines greatness, I want you to notice the, the first thing that we might just slip over when we're going through here. And that's that Jesus does not call them on the carpet for a desire to be great. That's not what he's, you know, kind of, you know, shutting down on them. What he calls them on and calls them on the carpet about is a desire to be known as great, that they're they have this desire for prestige and that they want acclaim. And so it's a huge difference between like a desire to be great and then a desire to be known as being great. Because there's nothing wrong with the desire to be great at something. Right. I mean, in fact, just think about it a little bit. It's a healthy thing. The error lies in why you want to be great. Okay, so for example, it is a good and right thing to want to be a great friend. It is a good and right thing to want to be a great son or a great daughter or a great spouse or a great uh, employee. That's a good and right thing. It is a it's good to want to have great theology and have a great prayer life and be part of a great community group and have great spiritual discipline. And so a desire for greatness is not the, the problem. We should desire as Christians to be great at the what God's called us to. Right. No one wants to go to a marginal surgeon. We want to go to a great surgeon. And so it's not the desire to be great that's the problem. It's the desire to be known and praised and acclaimed and recognized and have your ego stroked and bragged on and just build your life and identity on egotistical narcissism. That's the problem. Amen. And so Jesus isn't saying, hey, I wish you guys would stop worrying about being great and just seek to be marginal Christians, just mediocre. That's what I want. And he's not saying that. He's not repudiating greatness. He's redefining it. And he's saying be great as God defines it. Not as man. And so let's just break those down. Greatness as the world defines it. And then greatness as Christ defines it. And so if you're taking notes in your bulletins, number one, let's look at greatness as the world defines it. All right, greatness as the world defines it. And you can look with me again, if you would, at, at verse 25. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them, twice over them, are called benefactors. And so this is this is how the world defines greatness. The world defines greatness as those who have power and prestige and position and popularity and possessions. That's how the world defines greatness. Right? He he who has the most toys wins. He who dies with the most toys wins. And so in those days that was always the king. 
As the ruler of his people, the king had all the money and he had all the authority that his kingdom had to offer and everyone was under him and he could live for himself. But he liked to think of himself as a philanthropist, so he wanted to be referred to as a benefactor. But this is pretty much the way that people still define greatness today. Power and position and prestige and popularity and possessions. Matter of fact, in 2005, they did a... um, there was an assignment given to MBA students at uh, Harvard University, and they were charged to develop a strategic plan entitled, What Do I Hope to Achieve Achieve in Life After Graduation? So this strategic plan, the number one answer, the number one you know, priority in these uh, MBA students from Harvard University's life was number one, to acquire vast amounts of wealth. The second priority was notoriety for themselves. And the third priority was status and position in life. That's how the world defines greatness. But the Bible says that this vision of greatness based upon uh, material circumstances is not, not just wrong, it's actually idolatry because you're valuing something more than you're valuing Christ And not only is it idolatry and sinful, but it is therefore harmful to you and will crush you because nothing can hold the weight that we put in those things. It will let us down. And so Jesus is, you know, warning us throughout the Bible, not just stay away from these things because he's like a meanie who wants to keep us from things, but because he loves us and knows us and he cares for us. And he knows how things work best. And so in his grace, kind of talking about this, God gave us a book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes. And in this, talking about a king who has status and authority and has the ability to do whatever he wants, you've got this king in Ecclesiastes named Solomon. And Solomon has all of the wealth and all of the power that a king could possibly have. And he's searching for meaning and purpose and and peace and rest in life and satisfaction and joy. And so what he does is he basically conducts an experiment with all of his wealth and all of his resources that he's going to try and find it in this and in this and in this and in this and in this until he finds joy, satisfaction, meaning, purpose. And so he first tries, and you can go back and read the book if you want, he first tries an experiment of partying and just vast amounts of alcohol and wastedness and just, uh, just I mean, partying for weeks on end. And that doesn't work. So he tries philanthropy and pouring himself into work, becoming a benefactor. It's still empty. And so he pours himself into his investments. Still empty. And so then he just tries vast amounts of sex and sexual encounters. He had 300 wives and 700 concubines. That's empty. Then he tried just becoming, you know, like the most wise and sage person on the planet. He was still empty. And so understand Solomon as king was able to chase all of these things down to the very end. There was literally nothing that he had not tried. Like we might could think about it and Solomon's like, I tried it. And at the end, he says, it's all vanity. 
to the point that he hated his life. It was purposeless. That even though he had all the resources to gratify his every desire, literally, he tried. At the end of gratifying them all, everything you could ever think of, vanity. And so the book of Ecclesiastes is given to us so that we can learn from Solomon's blood and not our own. To see that all the things that the world holds up as greatness and the pathways to joy and satisfaction are actually empty. But on the whole, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't believe Solomon. So we buy into not learning from his blood, but having learned from our own, and we jump on this incessant treadmill where we just think, if, if I could just get a little bit more of this, then I'll be happy. Just more parties, I'll find joy. More alcohol, that'll cheer my soul. More houses, more parks, more landscaping, more wealth, more possessions, more things, more sex, more wisdom, more knowledge, more of this, and I'll be satisfied. And it's just this unending treadmill of getting on this thing and running, 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 and we make no progress towards joy, towards contentment and satisfaction and purpose and meaning. We're just running. Never getting there. And think, just sometimes you got to pull out and, and think about what you're thinking about. And so look at how our thinking works when we live that way. Just the futility of thinking. We believe that if we could just get more of what already does not satisfy us, we would be satisfied. If I could just get more money, which already doesn't satisfy us, then I'd be satisfied. If I could just get... A bigger house, which already doesn't satisfy, and then I'll be satisfied. If I could just get a better job, and we're not satisfied in this job right now, then I would be satisfied. If I could just get more of what already does not satisfy me, then I would be satisfied. That's insane. And yet, this is the world's definition of greatness. But it will leave you empty. It will not satisfy it's sinful and it's idolatry of valuing things above God and it's harmful because it puts you on an incessant treadmill of futility chasing fables and myths thinking that in them you will find satisfaction and greatness. And so Jesus says, stay away. Verse 25 again, And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you, again, he's not condemning being great, it's just what are, why do you want to be great? Rather, let the greatest among you, redefining it here, become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. And so greatness, this is number two in your notes, greatness as Christ defines it, Right? Greatness, as Christ defines it, is taking the back seat. It's being treated as the youngest. See, in those days, people had a lot of um, respect and deference towards those who were older than them. Like uh, growing up, uh, you, some of you grew up and they were, you were taught, respect your elders, respect your elders. That's the idea here. I grew up 
uh, and my, both my parents worked. My grandmother lived across the street from us, and so I basically grew up like spending a whole lot of time with her, especially in the summers. And all of her brothers and sisters, she was like one of seven, they all lived right there in the community. Her mom lived there in the community, lived till she was all, three months shy of 105. So I spent my life around old folks, like really old folks. And it was awesome. It's kind of like, though I grew up in the 80s and 90s, it's almost like in some ways I grew up years before because, I mean, I see people and they had tractors, but sometimes they break the donkey out and plow. Like that's, you know, how they lived. And so there's this idea of respecting your elders. That was drilled into me and that was very much present in this time, in this culture. Younger folks would stand up when older folks walked in. They would listen extra close. They regarded their elders as betters. And this is how Jesus is saying that we should live regarding not just our elders as betters, but regarding everyone around us as betters. Right? As better than ourselves, as more important than we are. And so how do we live that way? How do you get there? It's by having a correct view of God and a correct view of yourself. If you will have a correct view of God and a correct view of yourself, you will live in humility. You will live a life of continual repentance. The Anglican J.C. Ryle put it like this, the Christian who really knows himself and his own heart, who knows God and His infinite majesty and holiness, who knows Christ and the price at which He was redeemed, that man will never be a proud man. Because he brings nothing to the table. All we bring to the table, like we have no bartering chips with God, all we bring to the table is sin and wickedness. Anything that is good in us is produced by God. So we bring nothing. It's all of grace. God did it all. He sent Jesus to do it all. Jesus lived a perfect life because we didn't. Jesus died in our place for our sin that we have committed, that we are condemned to be punished for. And Jesus was punished in our place. Jesus, in his great power, rose again, validating the fact that it's all true and guaranteeing that we will be resurrected someday. And he did all of this. Not on the basis of anything we've done, we bring to the table sin. He did it completely on the basis of what he's done for us and his grace and his mercy and his love. And so it's just a gift of grace. And so there's no room for swagger. Like my jackets lost to the University of Miami yesterday. And the use all about swagger. But the Christian, there is no room for swagger. Ever. We did nothing. Jesus paid it all. And so there's no such thing. I know they exist, but hear the end of the statement. There is no such thing as an arrogant Christian who knows biblically what Christianity is. Those things that arrogance and Christianity, they don't grow in the same dish. It's an impossibility for a Christian who understands what Christianity is all about and the price that Jesus has paid for you to be arrogant. So you did nothing. There's no room for swagger. Jesus did it all. 
And so that's when we get that, it makes us content to be able to continually live a life where we take the back seat humbly. We don't have a right for anything. We didn't do anything. Christ did it all. And so out of love and honor for Christ, we walk humbly. Now I want you to understand, humility, when we talk about humility, humility does not mean a permanent inferiority complex. I'm just worse than everybody else. Everyone, that's not what it's talking about. Humility does not mean that you're the person who just walks around with your head hanging down and you walk around with a dark, dark cloud over your head, sackcloth and ashes. Rather, humility, I, go, I, I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking about yourself less. You're not the center of the universe. The world does not revolve around you. You don't have to read yourself into every single conversation. You're not easily offended. Things can roll off your back. Because you don't think about yourself. It's a self-forgetfulness. And the only way to get that, even as John Calvin said, nothing but the knowledge of God can produce humility in us. And so humility is not simply you know, feeling small all right, and useless like an inferiority complex. It is not that. It is sensing how great and how glorious God is and seeing ourselves in light of that. John Frame put it like this. If you're coming to God daily to confess to him how much you've sinned. You'll find it hard to pretend that you are holier than everybody else. You'll find it hard to put on airs, to pose as the perfect Christian. And that is freeing. And it's freeing, brothers and sisters, to stop pretending. And if we could build that culture and continue to build that culture ever increasingly here in this church, like we've been called to, to do, then all of a sudden, nobody's ever trying to impress anybody. Nobody's cool. Oh, those are the cool ones and those aren't. No, 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 no. All right. Nobody can one up anybody because all we've got is Christ and he died for all of us. We realize that we're all a mess, but for the grace of God. That we're all in a difficult position except for the grace of God. And so when we look at the holiness of God and we look at the glory of the cross and what Christ accomplished for us there, we find that we are all on the same even footing at the foot of the cross. No one's better than anyone else. And it results, again, not in thinking less of ourselves, but just thinking about ourselves less and learning to think about God and others more. And learning to serve and consider others as more important than ourselves. That's true greatness. And it's a life that will satisfy your soul because it's transfixed on God. It's wrapped up in Him 
which is the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes. This failed and this failed and this failed and this failed and this failed. Everything under the sun leaves me empty and vanity of all vanities. Life is vanity. It's useless. It's pointless. I hate my life. Everything under the sun. Ah, but if I get above the sun and I look beyond the sun and I see the one who created the sun, then I find wholeness and then I find fulfillment. Then I find purpose and meaning in the whole of eternity. Ecclesiastes 3.11 that's been put in my heart to make me search for God is satisfied. That's the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes, that apart from God, there is no lasting satisfaction. And so 1,500 years after Solomon lived, 5th century A.D., a guy by the name of Augustine, who lived in North Africa, said this, summarizing basically what Solomon had discovered. You made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And then 1,200 years after Augustine, 17th century, Blaise Pascal said that there's an infinite abyss in our being that can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God Himself. And yet, we go back to trying to define ourselves based upon circumstances, based upon temporal things. Uh, How much of our lives is built around trying to build a case, again, for us to have swagger? Look at me. Look at what I've done. Aren't I awesome? Tell me how awesome I am. Don't you wish you were like me? Aren't you jealous of me? And so I'm going to call out some questions here. Yes or no? Uh, Privately. (laughs) A little pride test. Think about. Does it matter to you if you get recognition for doing a good job, good paper, improving on something? Not not just that you improve, but that you get recognition for it. Do you like and even long to be seen as a person of stature? Not as a person of great character, but you want... Not just as a person of great character, but that you want to be known that way. You, You want people to admire you. Do you get a kick out of how many likes you get on Facebook or Instagram? Do you revel and live for compliments? Do you ever kind of casually take credit for someone else's work? Do you exaggerate to make yourself look great? Do titles and tags pump you up? Is popularity and people's opinion of you crucial to your sense of self-worth? Do you always think that you have something valuable to say about almost anything? Uh, Do you regard yourself, like regularly consider yourself the wisest, smartest, or most spiritually mature person in the room? Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. With the humble is wisdom. James 4, 6. God opposes the proud. But gives grace to the humble. And we recognize our humility. We look at the greatness of God and see Him rightly. And see ourselves rightly. We bring nothing to the table.
Christ did all. He did it all. And so that's greatness as God defines it. When we live for others, we see God is supreme. We see others as supreme. Therefore, we serve them. All right. That's greatness as Christ defines it and as he personifies it. And that's number three this morning. Greatness personified. Greatness personified. So we've got greatness as the world defines it. Greatness as Christ defines it. And then greatness personified. And it's personified in the person and work of Christ. Look at verse 27. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table. Like as they were eating. You, that's how you ate. Or one who serves. And then he answers this rhetorical question. Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you. As the one who serves. And so like think about this. Imagine what kind of service. The Lord Jesus Christ deserves to receive. For he is the greatest one of all. He is the supreme reality of the universe. There's nothing higher than him. That's why it is good and right for him to say. Everyone should worship me. Everyone should praise me. I deserve all glory and worship. If he was not all about the praise of his glorious grace, then he would be about the praise of something else. And that thing would be God. He's the supreme reality. There's nothing higher than him. All glory. He should be about that. That's what he deserves. He is greatness that literally cannot be exaggerated. He's God incarnate. Second person of the Trinity. He's eternal. He always has been, always will be, very God of very God. Fully man, fully God at the same time, hypostatic union, out of nothing, ex nihilo, He created all things. There's nothing in the universe that was not the product and creation of His divine mind. And that He does not rule. And yet, He humbled Himself. And he became a man. Even to the point of death, even death on a cross. He faced every temptation and every trial that we did, yet without sin. But then he laid down this perfect, obedient life for rebels, or as the Bible he calls us, enemies. He laid it down for enemies, those who rebelled against him, those who spit on him, mock him, belittle him, hate him. He laid down and died in our place. He rose again. He ascended back into heaven. He's worshipped by angels and myriads of saints who've gone on before us. He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. He's the infinitely superior person, okay? You want to know that? That's Jesus. He is the infinitely superior person, the one who ought to be reclining at the table. And yet, he says, but I am among you as the one who serves. And this turns everything upside down as it relates to greatness. I mean, earlier Jesus said, not so with you. Now he's telling them why? Because it's not so with me. Although I am the greatest one, I am the one who serves. More literally, I am the deacon. 
I'm the table waiter. The word serves here is diakonos. It's where we get the word deacon. And it's why the church later adopted that word as those who serve the church. Deacons are those who serve the church. They're not the ones who govern the church. That's elders. But deacons are those who serve the church. And so Jesus is saying, I'm a deacon. I'm the one who waits tables. I'm the one who is deserving of all service. But I came rather to serve. And Jesus has been, he's been serving his disciples ever since he called them to follow him. He's been leading them. He's been feeding them. He's been healing them. He's been teaching them. He's been correcting them. He's been training them. He's been loving them. And soon, like in the chronology of this book, this is Thursday night. Next day, he's going to die for them. Serving them all the way to the point of death, bearing their sins and our sins all the way to the grave. And so Jesus took his whole life. Okay, so we think about our lives. He took his whole life and he gave it to his disciples as he gives it to us. The very one, the great one who made all things, made himself our servant. As he did the work of salvation. And so friend without Christ. Greatness of God, yet he humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself and became a man and died on the cross in your place and offers you forgiveness, offers you freedom, offers you life, meaning and purpose and fulfillment. All these things that we can't get in possessions and power and prestige and popular, but our heart longs for. We long for something. We long for something. We just look for God replacements. And he says, it's me. And here I am. Take me. So trust him. Come out, Christ. Trust Christ. He offers himself to you. And in Christian friend, Jesus now calls us to be like him. Okay, he's greatness personified. And he now calls us to find our true greatness in living for him and therefore for others rather than for ourselves. He calls us to forget ourselves for the sake of others. And so who are you serving? Jesus came to serve. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest. And the leader is one who serves. And so who are you serving? Like personally. How are you serving the community in the name of Christ? Like here at Providence, we gather for worship. This is how we make disciples. We gather for worship. That's what we're doing right now. Number one thing, most important thing, we gather for worship and then we grow in Christ. All right. And we do that through groups. And then we serve the church and the community and we go to our neighbors and the nations with the gospel. And so how are you serving the community? How are you serving the church? Rather, what's the greatest among you becomes the youngest and the leader is one who serves. For who's greater? One who reclines at a table or who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. May we be as well. Friends, don't seek your own greatness. But seek to live greatly for King Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, it's true that we so often live with a mindset to make a name for ourselves, not because we're seeking to do something great for you, but because we want to be known as being great. We want to make a name for ourselves. We don't want to make a name for you. We want the glory. We want notoriety. We want fame. We want power and prestige and position and possessions and popularity. And we're idolaters. Forgive us, O oh God. Have mercy on us, God. And even as we take a moment to just pray silently, open up our eyes to the reality that this takes in our own heart and minds. How it specifically works out in our lives. How we seek to find in other things what only we can find in you. And how we seek to puff ourselves up as the world does in defining greatness. And we don't seek to live out a life of greatness as you define it. As we take a couple of seconds, ponder this specifically in your own heart. Amen.